The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Hey everybody, Holden here. Oh, hey, I'm Jake. And I just wanted to take a quick second to talk about this live show we got going on in Brooklyn in June. Oh, are you talking about the live podcast event of the season? <laughs> oh my God, yes, I'm talking about the live podcast of the season. Of course, the sites are maybe like Lost Podcast on the Left Live, but you know what I mean? But this is its own thing. Wizard and the Bruiser, page seven on one stage. It's going to be incredible at the Bell House on June 9th. That's Sunday, June 9th at the Bell House. Doors are at seven. The show is at 7.30. You can get tickets online for just... 25 bucks. We're going to have merch. We're going to have signed posters. We're going to be hanging out after the show. Come party with us. Uh, Don't party with Jackie. She's a violent presence. (laughs) See you there, guys. Throne show, Game of Thrones show, Game of Thrones show, Game of Thrones show, Game of Thrones. Not the novels or the books we're talking about. The TV show, Game of Thrones show, Game of Thrones show, Game of Thrones Serialized television. I didn't get this far in my conception of what that song was going to be. Welcome, everybody. I'm so fucking jazzed right now, and that's why I'm cursing immediately at the top of the show to let the cool kids know that I'm down with the clown, Hatchet Man, for life, because today we've got Game of Thrones, the TV show, and um, I'm just so excited to talk about it. This show has meant so much to me. I honestly believe this is the last TV show. Um, no, it's, we've entered a fractured kind of, uh, world. We've entered a streaming on demand world. And the idea that there's this one thing that everybody has everybody watches and you, nobody knows what's going to happen next unless you find the readily available leaks online. Um, (laughs) and that like, you know, you're sitting around the water cooler and sharing your opinions and you know, it's this vital, like, Hey, how's the weather? Small talk crutch that yes. society isn't gonna have anymore yeah after this. it really is that show that uh, love it or hate it you know uh, even or if, love it love it a lot then hate it more than you've ever hated anything <laughs> in your entire life apparently or also just be that guy that's like i don't watch it and like be all about like but that's the funny thing about the show like you can't just like not watch the show you are a person that doesn't watch <laughs> game of thrones that's like a label over your head that you like stand behind and really love about yourself i'm actually a reform not watches <laughs> game of thrones guy i've known never. so many of those people though who are like i'm never gonna watch the show and then they finally decide to you know i'll give it 
it a shot, and all of a sudden they they're five seasons deep, and it's everything. I was a fan of Carnival. Do you understand how low my standards are? <laughs> this show has so much meaning to me; it's unbelievable. This show has framed my relationship with Lexi so perfectly that mm. literally, when we first started seeing each other, one of the first things we did was start watching Game of Thrones together because it came out like right around the time we started seeing each other, and we just got married right as the show was ending. It's kind of uncanny. This show has framed our relationship in such a strong way that I can't think of the show without thinking of when you know us like falling in love with each other because it was such a central part of our getting together. I mean, that's how much this means to me. It almost feels like family, this show, you know? And I get it, like... Uh, oh, by the way, we have to preface. We are recording this episode, this part one, before the fi- uh, the season series days finale. Before the series finale. Yeah. So we're living in pre-finale Game of Thrones world. You know, the sewers system still works. Our president <laughs> is, the, the Washington, D.C. isn't on fire. There aren't roving bands of savage free folk in the streets. We get to live in the before four times. And, you know, whatever the future holds. God help us all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm terrified. I think I'm going to start staying offline because I don't hate it as much as everybody else online does, and it's starting to make me sad. I, I don't love it. I know I get it, and we'll, we'll talk about I think we're going to spend a bonus episode really picking apart this final part, but but we are definitely going to be covering You know what it is? It's uh, anyone who's actually had to produce something will always just be a little bit more forgiving oh, and God. know and understand that, like, yeah, you had, like, time was running out and you had to submit something and yeah. you're not happy, but it fucking happened. It, it just, it happens. I still have, have them to thank for countless hours of entertainment. Not just entertainment. Not just, like, oh, I throw it on, whatever. Like, countless hours of, it's the only show that I stop everything. The phone disappears from my world. Mm-hmm. Everything disappears from my world. The no, lights go off. No other show has ever had, I think, that big of an impact on me or, or or has had that ability of stopping power on me well, that this for- show does. I Because I'm very distracted. I'm sure I have some l- layer of D, uh, ADD going on. Like, I'm all over the place. I'm always looking at my phone. I'm always kind of drifting in and out when I'm watching something these days. I think that's why I like video games generally more when I'm on my doing my downtime just because it's it's something that I it's tangible I'm more engaged because there's another layer of engagement going on um, and even then I probably have a YouTube video on the other screen but Game of Thrones is like a showstopper for me I just I just l- absolutely love it from the look for, to the characters to the actors are just amazing this cast of care these this amazing cast um, just every how many iconic moments just getting to like watch and of course there's going to be spoilers guys like uh, so you know just heads up I'm sure there's going to be stuff talked about but I'll only refer to things in general right now but you know getting to okay I have such a vivid memory of sitting in uh, uh, Adam's apartment big viewing party there's one dude there that has not seen uh, read the books and doesn't know that the red wedding <laughs> is about to happen all of us are like bracing ourselves for it but where everyone kept a tight lip and getting to like be in that room and experience that moment with a big shitload of people and having one person literally just being like what the fuck you know what I mean mm-hmm. and like I, I don't know I, and 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 we'll get into more specific moments next week but I'm just saying I've got a big hard boner for Game of Thrones and it's never going to go away. I love the show so much, so much that I, you know, devoured the novels. And then at a certain point when I was finishing up Feast for Crows, I was like, wait a minute. 
that show isn't an adaptation of these like great books for me. These great books are ruining or like <laughs> spoiling me for this awesome TV show that I love. Amazing. So you would say because I would still say I'm because more... you know we covered the books mm-hmm. in a or the first book in a very early episode. Yes. So, by the way, long time listeners, like you are correct. This isn't a rerun. Yes, we do are... not adjust your television sets. We are, and we will be covering. Um, uh, I'll be doing a brief overview of George R. R. Martin's careers with and, and with the books and everything, and with Hollywood leading up to um him uh, collaborating with them but more to give you a background we covered george r R. martin much more in depth uh with the drunks and dragons uh guys uh uh way back when yeah back when megan was our producer and how long was ago was that that was a couple years at this point during the long winter (laughs) when ice spiders roamed the land and I would say I w- I'm more I, at the end of the day I'm more of like probably a book boy like I love I love, love <laughs> the books right and I'm very excited for Winds of Winter to still come out and and sh- hopefully shed new light and and give the ending the breadth mm-hmm. that I think it, it it has a bit lost here and it's in in the landing but uh, that said um, what a fucking wild ride. Uh, Anything? Shall we get into it? Shall we start talking about uh I, about these characters? It's just uh, what really just shattered it. What really made it stick was we all live in a media saturated world. We all this is the you know the third generation to grow up on television. Fourth, if you're counting the younglings beneath us, and so we have all these laws, like all these tropes, all these patterns that we've internalized. Whether it's like uh you know. The save the cat moment or, you know, the big uh, third act twist. We're like we're raised with all these rules and we understand innately how television shows are supposed to go. And all they had to do to really break us to like conquer the world was just not do what we're expecting to just let characters breathe. Let everyone, you know, plot armor doesn't exist. Nobody is a moron. Nobody is just like doing things because the script says this has to happen here. If uh, one of our beloved heroes is in a vulnerable position with one of their biggest enemies, they're not going to monologue or let them get away or do something dumb. They're going to die. And that's just mind blowing. And so I feel like that's what made the show so fascinating is that it felt it like it just burned away any and all of the buffers and filters that a normal television viewer would have. Uh huh. Absolutely. All right. Shall we get into it? Into it, we shall go. <laughs> okay, let's start with David Binioff. Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it, Jake? That's how I pronounce it. Yes, I looked it up on Wikipedia frantically just now because I meant to do it right before we started recording. David Otherwise, Binioff. he's Benoit. Benoit sounds a little <laughs> odd, right? David Binioff, uh, born in uh, New York City to a Jewish family, the son of Stephen Friedman, who was a former head of Goldman Sachs. So oh, not me- okay. For, all right, number one. <laughs> The fucking play the fucking communist. <laughs> play the international behind me. Uh, I actually don't believe in communism. It seems like a very flawed system, but whatever. Um, the the fact is that like not he is he was not only like a chairman of Goldman Sachs. He was then like working with the New York Fed to regulate Goldman Sachs at the height of the fucking financial crisis. <laughs> like number one ghoul, number one fucking like king dick of Money Mountain. Just a fucking super villain and so. it does always make me a little sad when i see this because i'm just like of course that's what you have to be to get to become like a producer of one of like the g- most gigantic tv shows of all time 
Uh, the son of a just fucking, I don't know, Bagillionaire, I guess we would call it. Uh, so anyways, of course, Goldman Sachs, if you don't know, it's a, it's a giganto investment bank and financial services company. And he was also uh, has a distant cousin uh, uh, who is a billionaire entrepreneur, Mark Benioff. Uh, Salesforce. Have you ever heard of Salesforce? It's uh-huh. that guy. So he uses Benioff, as his mo- uh, which is his mother's maiden name, to avoid confusion with all the other writers in Hollywood named David Friedman. Because <laughs> there are too many <laughs> to keep up with. So um, he ends up uh, growing up all in different spots around Upper Manhattan. I think his apartment, uh, I'm sure, just got bigger and bigger <laughs> as, as he got older and older uh, as a kid. He uh, went to high school at what is claimed to be the oldest school in the U.S., an independent school for boys called the Collegiate School. After that, he attended Dartmouth College, where he was a member of the oldest all-male secret society in the country called the Sphinx Senior Society. This is an important distinction. Uh, If you're like a rich, smart guy, like you could go to Harvard, you could go to Yale, but if you're a fucking mover and shaker, if you're out there to like... Just like tear out hearts and like fuck the earth like the stallion of Dothraki lore, uh, you go to Dartmouth and you join one of those societies. He bounced around at different odd jobs after college. He was a club bouncer in San Francisco, a high school English teacher, and a wrestling coach at Poly Prep in Brooklyn. At a at, at one point in time, he was a radio DJ in Moose, Wyoming. Well, that was be- that was his night shift because yeah. he was there for a writer's retreat. Yes, he was there for a writer's retreat, and he ends up going off in 1995 to Trinity College in Dublin to pursue an academic career there to study Irish literature. He ends up writing a thesis on Samuel Beckett, the Irish novelist and playwright, but this thesis uh, just it was shitty to write. He did not have a good time. And he also especially didn't have a really great time knowing that like three people were going to read it and he was busting his ass day in, day out, just trying to write this like giant tome. So he ends up wanting to maybe pursue a different career than academia. This is also, by the way, where he meets D.B. Weiss. Um, we'll get back to that later. Just, yeah. That's where they first meet. So anyways, Benioff returns to the U.S. and ends up joining the creative writing program at the University of California, Irvine, after reading The Mysteries of Pittsburgh by Michael Chabon. Actually, that's what inspired him. And he was a alumnus at University of California, he Irvine. He was like, oh, yeah, I want to be a cool Jewish novelist. <laughs> yeah, Michael Chabon also, I, I feel like we would end might end up doing... Um, an episode on him one day, or at least maybe on The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, because uh, I I do love that book. And, yeah, uh, I'm surprised he, that hasn't been adapted to some like prestige TV thing yet. Yeah, really. I you know you you always think like that would be a really good yeah that would be such a good show. It really yeah. would be such a good TV show. So anyway, hey, maybe you and I, the new Benioff and Weiss, we go to HBO. Okay, but fucking we'll li- pitch this idea. Fucking literally, like, oh, I'm giving up the ghost way too early, but like. <laughs> Everybody talks about like, oh, these two guys and like their vision and like these create their big thing was is that they got a hold of Game of Thrones and was like, oh, this can't be a movie. This has to be an HBO series because uh, HBO has the money. HBO has the prestige and and the tits and the tits. And this (laughs) is like and this is a compelling story. So we have the story. We know where to pitch it. And like. They succeeded in getting it done while everyone else who got a hold of George R. R. Martin's work, which was getting some visibility because they were best-selling fantasy novels, mm-hmm. were like, we're going to make it a movie, but with no tits and no violence. <laughs> yeah, because that's the only way to do that, right? I yeah. mean, the only way to get a movie made of this of uh, uh, of such an epic 
fashion would have to be more like Lord of the Rings and and more PG PG thirteen in order to get as many people in as possible. It's just it's just not doable, really, technically, to have that much violence and and breastices and <laughs> pe- and straight dick, dude. There's mm. penis in there too, you know. And and you just can't you can't get that uh, uh, and do like a big trilogy or really in this case, uh, you know. Septology. I'm not going to call them two overcompensating Jewish nerds that just acted like history's great middlemen. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> so anyways, back to Benioff. He gets his master in fine arts um, at the University of California, Irvine. That's back in 1999. He ends up taking two years to write his first novel, The 25th Hour, as his thesis for his master's. Now this, this immediately he's success. Again, <laughs> hate to see this. Just because he's so quickly successful, well, it y- makes me upset. You know what inspired him to write The 25th Hour? Yes. It's about a drug dealer uh, who got seven years in prison spending his last night of freedom with two buddies reevaluating his life. And it was because, what, he ended up in uh, Bellevue? He was – no, no, no. He had uh, he was home for Passover and okay. got appendicitis from ah. eating too much kugel probably. <laughs> and he just realized he was in a, you know, a Manhattan hospital and could see the city and realized that he was removed from it. And he just – uh, kind of pushed it out so that it was like, okay, I'm not in the hospital. What if it was in prison? What if, like, you were amongst this city that you knew you were going to get cut off from? And what would that feel like? Yeah. Uh, That's pretty but smart. What if he's not a well educated Jewish novelist? What if he's a rough and tumble Irish Catholic drug dealer? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and what if instead of uh, very nice people, he had a drunken father, like firefighter dad? It's like, this. you know what it is? I'm over, I'm projecting because when I started creative writing and realized I didn't have that many truly interesting life experiences to drop on, the first thing I did was like, New York City, the city of New York, like you know, because that was the only cool thing I had access right, to. Right, right, right. It was like walking down Bleecker Street, you know, just <laughs> typing in Microsoft Word, like for a fucking creative writing class. So I'm all I'm projecting so hard on Benioff, but like, uh, of course, that's your first novel. Well, I, it was at least it was so good that um, uh, it was actually published in 2001, and it catches the attention of Toby Maguire, oh, yeah. we'll uh, who helps him get an adaptation made, uh, written by Benioff as well this adaptation and this is starring Edward Norton Philip Seymour Hoffman and it's directed by Spike Lee in 2002 I watched clips of it were you about to ask me if I'd seen it uh yeah I want to see it just the mirror scene everyone posts the mirror scene Uh it's just like to all the Italians and Bensonhurst fuck you (laughs) and all the b-boys uptown fuck you (laughs) fuck the Puerto Rican day parade I do want to watch it uh from the scenes that I watch it felt like a play adaptation it felt very sceny very like you know what I mean like when you see a play get adapted to a film it was just very like you know two guys having a conversation so much of it felt like that so I was surprised to to think of it as a, a book adaptation so anyways after that he that's his break into Hollywood immediately after getting his masters makes me upset a little bit. Uh, he he, he, he ends he takes the the screenwriting course the Michael what's the what's the famous guy? Oh shit! Oh whoa 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 whoa! From uh in in the film adaptation. Yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. Whatever, well, you look it up while I give this factoid. He ends up getting paid $2.5 million to draft a screenplay of the mythological epic Troy through Warner Brothers. Then. The script for a psychological thriller called Stay in 2005, directed by Mark Forster, who then collaborated with him on the screenplay for The Kite Runner. I didn't even know he co-did The Kite Runner. 
um, which I, I remember when that movie came out was a huge deal. That was uh, uh, which was that was another adaptation from a novel. So immediately, I mean, he's ad- adapting his own novel. He's he's adapting other people's novels. He's getting into the business specifically of adaptation in Hollywood um, on big projects, but films at this point not really any television he ends up actually writing the first version of is it michael haig's story master no 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 it's rob rob robert something oh, i think okay. isn't it robert mckee robert yeah, it is mckee is that what it's it is the mckee he went um, to, he took the mckee class yes he took the mckee class he ends up uh writing the first version of the x-men origins wolverine script they claim he claims his work was very heavily he wanted uh very heavily rewritten Yes, he claims a lot of his, studio meddling. His it sounds to me like his was more like a Logan, like mm-hmm. it was more like the film Logan, like it was more it was dark, gritty, R-rated, rough around the edges, and they just weren't ready for that. And then they just went in and completely changed. We kind of we covered that in our Deadpool episode. Uh huh. That's right. Uh, okay, so this is a great episode. Fantastic episode. Check it out. Go back into the archives. <laughs> re-listen to all of them. It helps. Us, it helps you. <laughs> I think it just helps us, actually. So anyways, D.B. Weiss. Uh, let's talk about him for a second here. He is born in Chicago to a Jewish family. He graduated from Wesleyan University and went on to get a Master of Philosophy in Irish Literature from Trinity College, Dublin, writing his thesis on James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Literally just like two guys <laughs> who want to be cool writers yeah. end up in Dublin. Yep. One is doing Beckett, the other James Joyce. James Joyce, like, yeah. Of course. Of course. Of- of course. <laughs> so anyways, he gets uh, a master in fine arts and creative writing from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Then he starts out as a personal assistant on various films, Then uh, and then also a personal assistant to Glenn Frey from the Eagles <laughs> for a little while. So that's kind of fun. It's, you know, you, work, you find work where you can. <laughs> and then he goes off to Dublin in 1995 to study Anglo-Irish literature, and that's where he meets Benioff. So... In 1998, in Santa Monica, California, Benioff and Weiss formally begin their collaboration together. This is so that it's oh. like they hung out in Northern Ireland. They're both at these academics. They're both clearly have some things in common. And I, it's I not just want to point out in... the, the juxtaposition between the two. Yes. Which is that Benioff's first novel is The 25th Hour, which is this big, like, New York tough gritty, rum gritty yeah. thing. Uh, Weiss's first novel is Lucky Wander Boy, yes. which is about a sad child who, who turns into a man whose obsession with the escapist quality of video games yes. leads him to a quiet life of obsession and contemplation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, it's just one, I'm just saying one is one is more in tune with who he is. Yeah. <laughs> So um, yeah, they're work. They're they're in Santa Monica, and they decide to co-write a screenplay called The Headmaster, and I believe it's the Satan is the headmaster of a yes. Of a what school. if what if the devil ran a parochial school? And uh, this movie was never made, but then they are after that hired in 2003 to collaborate on an adaptation of the sci-fi novel Ender's Game, which is to be directed by Wolfgang Peterson, who did Never Ending Story. Check out our Never Ending Story <laughs> episode. Oh baby, so many good hits. Uh, we just keep pumping them out. Uh, uh, uh. Um, uh, and that was also never used. So they're doing the Hollywood dance, writing stuff, wor- laboring over shit, and then a lot of projects not, falling through. Yeah, and then things falling through. And that is a subject we'll get back to when we get to George R. R. Martin's uh, <laughs> career in Hollywood, uh, up to the point of Game of Thrones being made on HBO. Oh, actually, we'll we'll, we'll be getting to that real soon because now it's time to talk a little bit about good old. George R. R. Martin. <laughs> I realized that my only other thing to talk about was uh, Lucky Wander Boy, and you threw it in there. So we're oh, good to yeah. go. I want to read Lucky Wander Boy. Uh, there's an excerpt you can find online. It's very, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I should check it out. I think I'm going to pick it up. Yeah. Um, 
because it has a lot of ephemera about the Intellivision. Is it why. seems like maybe it's got like some good. It seems like it's not going to be like obnoxious about its video game. It's not going to be a Ready Player uh, One kind of thing. I didn't want to bring it up. But, but that's exactly what I meant. But if you do, I liked, but I will say I fucking liked Ready Player One. Okay, so whatever. All that's right? fine. I'm not above it. No, I fucking loved Ernie Klein. Uh, I feel like if you have a background in video game history, it enhances it. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, George R. R. Martin. He grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey, and lived mainly from, as he put it, First Street to Fifth Street, a.k.a. he did not really get out much. It was a small orb of living that he had as a kid, which meant that he was always trying to escape. He really wanted to travel, so he ended up reading a ton, mostly fiction. He also wrote monster stories that he'd sell to kids in his uh, neighborhood for pennies, and fantasy stories centered around his pet turtles who lived in a toy castle that would die all the time, so he'd weave tales about them killing each other in, quote, sinister plots. Again, I'm regurgitating (laughs) shit from our previous episode, but I do feel like these are the facts that I pulled because I feel like these are some things that will get us to his relationship to Hollywood, his relationship to television. I think it's really important to restate a little bit of this. But yeah, he grew up in that Marvel Silver Age, uh, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, sci-fi pulp magazine, like golden age. He's, that was his world. He's even, he's even quoted to say, maybe Stan Lee is the greatest literary influence on me, even more than Shakespeare or Tolkien. So, I mean, that's how much comic books meant to him as well. He ends up getting a BS in journalism, then went on to teach English and journalism at Clark University. He also he got started as a professional writer with sci-fi short stories such as With Morning Comes Mistfall, which was nominated for a Hugo and Nebula Award, and his first novel that he sold was Dying of the Light back in the mid-70s. He ends up going on to write a novella called Night Flyers about a space team in search of an alien that get interrupted by the ship's own evil computer system, which sounds like 100% the plot of 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'm sure it's different, but I was like, how is that not 2001 A Space Odyssey? That's exactly what it is. I love how every story is like, don't trust computers for the love of God. Whatever you do, do not trust. Don't put them in your pockets. Don't be glued to them 24-7. Don't put computers in your everyday appliances. I beg you, we're from the past. (laughs) So um, he ends up, the reason why I bring up Night Flyers is this is the first time he ends up adapting one of his own work into a screenplay. Uh, He co-writes the adaptation. That's really going to get his start in moving more towards the Hollywood situation. He ends up writing uh, also a horror novel that failed commercially called The Armageddon Rag. And I bring that up because as he puts it, it essentially destroyed my career as a novelist at the time. Uh, And it's really the failure of this book that pushes him towards Hollywood. He ended up becoming a superstar screenwriter (laughs) and married a supermodel and everything worked out great because that's Hollywood, baby! Uh, Yeah, not exactly. Oh, Uh, no! Yeah, yeah, it's not quite like that. Uh, Hollywood producer Philip DeGuerre Jr. wanted to adapt... Uh, the Armageddon rag into a film, but that never actually materialized. But it did lead him to getting a writing job on The Twilight Zone, which is the fact that I know some people know about. And that is what 
really is his I mean now he's a staff writer on a TV show. The reboot one of the reboots of the Twilight Zone. The reboot, not the, not the shitty Rod- reboot. Yeah, yeah. This is in the mid eighties, by the yeah. way. He's not a dinosaur. I mean he's an old guy, but he's not a dinosaur. And yeah, the, now he's so he's getting I mean, you have this rare instance. It's not like Tolkien wrote on cheers. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you have this rare instance. That is a very funny image. <laughs> you have this rare instance of yeah, Kelsey Grammer like speaking in elfish and like <laughs> with a laugh track underneath it. It's this Amazing situation where you have this guy who write, ends up writing. Yeah, he has. I mean, we all remember the, the episode where Diane bestows <laughs> the mithril vestments upon Sam, and everybody realizes that they still have feelings for each other. Uh, yeah, you you have a guy who ends up writing this giant, amazing fantasy tome, but uh, he also understands how TV works and understands what it is to be a staff writer on a TV show and how to write an episode of television. It's incredibly important and such a great, great strength when it comes to the Game of Thrones TV show. Um, so in the early 90s, uh, Martin, he's fed up. He, he's he's <laughs> Turns out that Ron Perlman Beauty and the Beast adaptation <laughs> didn't take him to the stars. Yeah, he, he can't really get anything he wants to get made made. He's sick of the constraints of screenwriting and television writing in the sense of, you know, just limited characters, limited action, limited uh, breasts, limited everything, right? I, I think there was, like, a story where on the Twilight Zone, like, he was he get handed in a first draft, and they were like, fucking George, listen, you can either have the 50-man battle or you can have the moon landing. <laughs> you can't have both. So in the early 90s, he decides it's time to get back to writing. It's time to do something that he'd never really done before. He said, I had worked in Hollywood myself for about 10 years, from the late 80s to the 90s. I'd been on the staff of The Twilight Zone and Beauty and the Beast. All of my first drafts tended to be too big or too expensive. I always hated the process of having to cut. I said, I'm sick of this. I'm going to write something that's as big as I want it to be, and it's going to have a cast of characters that go into the thousands, and I'm going to have huge castles and battles and dragons. And it starts out as A Song of Ice and Fire, of course, but in three volumes, as it always does, mm-hmm. uh, by the way. I feel like every fantasy writer who starts writing their giant epic, they're like, it'll be three. And then it turns into seven, uh, specifically, almost immediately. <laughs> Game of Thrones is published in 1996, then Clash of Kings in 98, then Storm of Swords in 2000, Feast for Crows in 2005, and lastly, A Dance with Dragons in 2011. This is now uh, the end of our portion on George R. R. Martin and the beginning of our st- establishment of this Amazing property as a TV show on HBO. All right. We have three guys who weren't great at <laughs> the traditional Hollywood movie screenwriting. Yes, well, all of I them mean, are they failing. Were doing, they were doing fine. They were yeah. doing fine. But they, they, they're all having struggling trying to get something made. Do, you know, they're all. I think they're all similar in certain ways, and that's why a collaboration makes so much sense. So at this point, Benioff and Weiss have not heard of this series. I don't even believe. No, nope. much less read it. They, you know, they were classic like nerds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both talk about how they would play Dungeons and Dragons and they both read Tolkien, but that uh-huh. was just par for the course. That's just what being a teenager was in yeah, the 80s. totally. So Benioff ends up having a phone call uh, with who just happens to be George R. R. Martin's literary agent who directs his attention to A Song of Ice and Fire. And he ends up sending him the first four books in January of 2006. And Benioff, of course, really loves it. He ends up calling D.B. Weiss almost immediately after reading it. He says, maybe I'm crazy, but I haven't had this much fun reading anything in about 20 years So take a look, because I think it might make a great HBO series. And apparently Weiss finishes the first novel in, as he puts it, maybe 36 hours. (laughs) 
Like he, and I will say that first book, man, is that a page turner? And it's not too too long. How long is the first one? I can't remember. It's been so it's long. It's a great book, but it, man, you just blaze through it. It's so because captivating. it's it's uh, this weird like post apocalyptic like fantasy set. This amazing fantasy setting that is really unfamiliar. Plus, Ned's journey is like a classic noir whodunit. Yeah. It's like pretty much a beat for beat, like captivating mystery story. And on top of that, the format of just jumping around each chapter is a different character and a different perspective mm-hmm. just feels so fresh and engaging for, um, you know, any novel series. Right. Like I, I loved I loved that element of it. Just getting to be in everyone's different shoes and get their perspective and, 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 and see the world and th- through their eyes. And every chapter is a new, exciting, different mm-hmm. person. You know what I mean? It just really, really uh, is is so amazing. So I get, you know, where they're at when, when it comes to discovering. That, I mean, thing. that's that's amazing to be like. I, obviously, they would these were hits. Uh, George R. R. Martin would like get, you know, cover stories in uh, fantasy magazines. Mm-hmm. But like among the imagine being the one normie. <laughs> Who like has this secret in their hands? Yeah, like holy shit! Like I mean, I, I feel like they probably felt like the clocks had ticking. We we need to get to this before anyone else does, right? <laughs> and uh, people were trying to get. Mm-hmm. To it. So Benioff, Weiss, and Martin all have a restaurant, like a lunch meeting. Is it's it the a, Palm or something? I, I'm not sure. Uh, it's on Santa Monica Boulevard in mm-hmm. L.A. I know that, and it's a five hour long meeting. And apparently, as it goes. Uh, George R. R. Martin was won over by their answer to the question, who is Jon Snow's mother? And that was the moment where he said, I think I, I want to work with those guys. Um, and it's never clear whether or not, and because they obviously can't say what they said, mm-hmm. it's not quite clear whether or not they got it right, it's, it's per se, but probably. Obvious. Yeah, yeah, but probably. I mean, it's it was the most popular fan theory because it was the one that had the most textual support. Yes. Also, uh, George R. R. Martin talks about how he was meeting with tons of people at the time, and oh. they were all pitching movies. Yes. That's all they wanted. The Lord of the Rings made all the money. You have a fantasy series. We want all the money. Let's make a fantasy trilogy. And uh, each book will will make just a two-hour movie. That's good. We can't make it longer. Are you kidding? We can't make it too long. What, 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 what do people enjoy characters and details? Fuck that. <laughs> um, and uh, George R. R. Martin was like, you know, these are my unfilmable books. I made these because they can't yeah. be contained. Right. And it was only because Benioff and Weiss were... A, enthusiastic, you know, they actually read the books, and B, they pitched a format that could feasibly uh, tell the story that he wanted to tell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they end up having a meeting with Carolyn Strauss, president of HBO at the time, and she greenlights the show. Sopranos, Deadwood. Yeah. And The, the not- Wire, Sex in the City. Notoriously a hard ass. Like, mm. we've talked about how a lot of uh, sh- uh, producers and executives were, like, eager to support new artists and like we're enthusiastic and wowed by stuff and like this is not one of those executives yeah but she takes them on and in 2007 uh in january of 2007 that is hbo acquires the tv rights to the novels with benioff and weiss signed on as executive producers along with george r R. martin as co-executive producer the pilot is co-written by benioff and weiss and it covers chapters one through nine of the book 
It is shot between October and November of 2009 on location in Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Morocco. And it... Uh, uh, wait, who directed it again? Oh, I don't know. I, you know what? I felt so bad for the director. No, this was... He, so he was an established guy. He worked with them before. Oh, and- okay. Because I, I, I actually left out the names of the actors who uh, were replaced... Just because I feel so bad for them. <laughs> because could you imagine being Daenerys in the pilot? And then, oh, a spoiler alert, it gets reshot and she gets replaced. I, I, I'd I, be beside myself watching the success of that show. I would be so upset. So anyways, they end up filming this pilot and they end up doing um, a private viewing with some friends. And it goes really, really fucking badly. Screenwriter and director Craig Mazin is like, you guys are in a lot of trouble here. Or or I forget what, exactly what he said. but Massive problem. Massive problems. The words were massive problems. Which uh, they wrote down and underlined many times. And when asked, when they asked <laughs> uh, him- This is from the Vanity Fair article called Game of Thrones showrunners get extremely candid about their original, quote, piece of shit pilot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they um uh, when, when they asked director Craig Mazin for ideas, he just said, change everything. The, the biggest oh, one... Uh, the d- original pilot was directed by Tom McCarthy, ah. who did Spotlight and oh. The Station Agent. Oh, okay. Which are great movies. Great movies. So, uh, yeah, they missed big things, though. Uh, the main thing they missed that people didn't get when they watched this original pilot was that Jamie and Cersei were actually brother and sister. So, like, the scene where they fuck, the it's, big like, twist. the big thing. Like, they had no idea they were even, it was an incest thing. Like, that's that's how bad this thing was. It was so bad that 90% of it had to be reshot with uh, new casting and a new director. So, if you if you really want to see uh, kind of the, the, the weird uh, kind of things that they were getting wrong in the original pilot by watching the first episode uh there's a scene where Tyrion Lannister uh is in a whorehouse when they get to Winterfell and his hair looks fucking awful his hair is like this unnatural weird blonde that like does not work on camera it is goofy looking as fuck and even then when they adjusted it his like original blonde hair still looked kind of goofy but you know they were like book says blonde hair he has to have blonde hair we'll just shoot it like that and it looked Awful. Yeah. Um, it was it, Peter Dinklage was originally cast. Right? Yeah, yeah. Peter yeah, Dinklage yeah. again, station agent, uh, mm-hmm. was the original original director. Um uh Caitlin Stark was played by a different actress. Yes, uh and she was so replaced. The uh if you notice there's scenes where like where uh Santa and Caitlin are in the same room, they've had to cut around the original actress. The White Walkers were, uh, they didn't have enough, they didn't have do the due diligence to actually get enough, like, uh, concept art and, like, production work done. So, uh, in the initial scene where they introduced the White Walkers, they just have a guy in green spandex kind of, like, running around, and they figured they could just fix it in post. <laughs> So lit- imagine literally presenting to HBO and being like, okay, so this guy will be, like, a monster or something. Jesus. So it, it's it's awful. Somehow HBO still allows it to be a TV show, by the way. I don't understand. They, they, they just jump from it was awful. Everybody hated it. And yet still somehow HBO decides to pick up the whole show for with a budget of like 50 million. Um, and I it mean, was, the books were a hit mm-hmm. and HBO needed, a you know, it fit their whole deal, which is we're going to take these established you know, whether it's a cop drama or a mobster thing or an Old West story mm-hmm. or weird uh, Depression era carnival where they fight a priest with magic. You know, adapting these old forms into these new, exciting, must-see destination series. 
uh, it, it still made sense on paper for them to do this. So they end up replacing uh, the director with Tim Van Patten, who did Deadwood and Boardwalk Empire episodes. Um, and of course, they did the casting replacements. And um, they end up knocking it out of the park. And the first episode gets 2.2 million viewers with an additional 2 million on the reruns uh, that same night. So the show starts off pretty damn well. Of course, it grows way bigger than that in terms of viewership. Um, but I want to now talk about the writing on the show. So uh, here we go. Oh, wait. Uh, can I read a quote from uh, Mason when he saw sure. the new pilot? Sure. I will never forget being invited to the premiere of the first season. I went in just thinking, well, I guess we'll just see how this goes. <laughs> I sat there and this show unfolds and I am stunned. Stunned. I very specifically remember walking out and I said to Weiss and Benioff, that is the biggest rescue in Hollywood history. Because it wasn't just that they had saved something bad and turned it really good. You had saved a complete piece of shit and turned it into something brilliant. That literally never happens. <laughs> and then, you know, the fact that Mason is a friend of theirs, whatever. It's yeah. fine. Hey, everybody. Holden here. And I just want you to admit it. You think that cybercrime is something that happens to other people. You may think that no one wants your data or that hackers can't grab your passwords or credit card details, but you'd be wrong. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest and cheapest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I decided to take action. To protect myself from cyber criminals, I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures an anonymous your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having my personal data stolen. And for less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash wizard. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot slash wizard for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash wizard to learn more. So uh, one of the things I was shocked about with the writing is that it's only um, seven writers, like in six seasons of the show. You've mainly just got Benioff and Weiss. Uh, George R. R. Martin, he ends up directing, or writing rather, an episode a season for the first four seasons, but he stops doing that because after the fourth because he really needs to fucking finish Wins a Winner. But either way, fucking finish it, dude. Um, and then also Jane uh, Espenson. Jane Espenson, she wrote on Buffy, Firefly, and Gilmore Girls. Um, she did one episode as a freelance writer. And then after that, you have Brian Cogman, who was script coordinator at first, but he was later promoted to producer. He did at least one episode for the first five seasons and is the only other writer in the writer's room with Benioff and Weiss. Lastly, uh, you've got Vanessa Taylor, who wrote the amazing Shape of Water film directed by Guillermo del Toro. She wrote on the second and third seasons. And then you have Dave Hill, who this is crazy to me. He was Benioff and Weiss's assistant 
he ends up uh, eventually getting hired as a writer. I don't think he had done anything before Game of Thrones. Like, that is a mad, crazy <laughs> career trajectory. Like, you go from personal assistant to writer on Game of Thrones. That's how Hollywood works. <laughs> and he did one episode on season five through eight each, uh, uh, an episode on each of those seasons, as well as a story editor for the later seasons. Um, so he's partly to blame. No, I'm kidding. But So, in an interview... Um I think in one of the, like, uh, official, like, the making of seasons one and two of Game of Thrones, Benioff and Weiss are asked, uh, you know, what were your favorite lines that you wrote for the show? And uh, Benioff talks about how the scene where Serial Pharrell is giving his lesson to Arya in the Hands Tower. I love it. With the classic, what do we say to the God of Death? Not today. Because that was Benioff's words. That that, That line wasn't in the original book as written. And that is Benioff's angle. That is cool Game of Thrones. That is badasses being saying like cool shit. Yeah. And that's what he's most proud of. Yeah. When asked Weiss, Weiss says his favorite scene that he wrote was this like very quiet scene where Robert Baratheon is just sitting and talking to Cersei about their marriage. It's the famous one where it's like, uh, like, can you even imagine a world where like a version of this marriage where we could have been happy? And Robert just looks at her and just goes like, no. Hmm. And Robert then just smirks and just goes like, does that make you feel better or worse? And Cersei just looks back at him and is like, to be honest, I don't feel anything. Hmm. And that is a whole nother angle of Game of Thrones where these people are fucking real. Yeah. These people are real as shit. Yeah. And the amazing thing is neither of those scenes would have happened if it weren't for the fact that once the show was greenlit and they were starting getting the episodes back, they were coming up short on time. Yeah. They had basically burned through all the money. All the locations had been set. They didn't have time to, like, add any new battles. All they had were the actors and, like, just locations. So they started filming scene after scene after scene where if you watch the first season, you'll be able to recognize these kind of scenes where just two characters are just kind of standing around and talking to each other. Uh, you know, Littlefinger and Varys kind of uh-huh. have their little like talk around. The I love that. I love all that stuff. Yeah. And like those quiet moments, which were done as a cost saving measure, did so much to like make these characters real. Yes, totally. And it's it's the cool shit and the real quiet moments that like made the show so fucking. Compelling. Well, here's another. In- I love this fact about the writing and it makes so much sense since you're bringing up the great characters. They would actually uh, Benioff and Weiss would assign certain characters to writers. Mm. So Cogman got Arya in season four, for example, mm-hmm. um, uh, Brian Cogman. Like, and so he was, you know, the the guy who supervised on the writing for that character. And that, I feel like, was a huge help to making these characters feel how they were. So uh, feel so real and so wonderful and, and have such great arcs. So what would happen was the writer would get assigned to a character, right? They would spend several weeks putting together a character outline, pulling from the novels and working with overarching themes, then another couple of weeks talking about the arc and inserting it into each episode. And then after that, um, a detailed outline is put together with the writing team. Then they'd go off individually and take a couple of months to write their assigned scripts. They would then return to Benioff and Weiss and get notes for rewrites. Benioff and Weiss would, uh, by the way, they had a different process. They would co-write their script. What they would do is they would split them in half and then pass their halves back and forth to each other for notes. So unlike the other writers, they had a had a very specific process 
for that. Apparently, they tried to write it together in the same room, like at, for the pilot. And it, it, I think they said that they had like half a page after like three hours and was like, this can't work. It's like driving a car at the same time, is how yeah. they put it. Like one person's on the steering wheel, one another person's on the gas. It just doesn't work. Uh, whenever a dispute would come out between, this is an anecdote they'd say on like late night and a bunch of interviews. If there was a dispute about like a specific line or a certain thing that would happen, uh, what would usually go down is Benioff would say, no, I want to do it this way. And then Weiss would, uh, over the next night, draft a 15-page email about why Benioff was wrong. <laughs> and so overwhelmed and bored, uh, Benioff would give it. <laughs> I got to use that technique. Uh, so all of the scripts, by the way, because of how they had to shoot things, because all the shoots, which we'll get into in just a second were all over the world and happening at the same time. They had to have... Easy whole- for two showrunners that have never set foot on a television <laughs> production before. They had they had to have the whole se- season written before they started shooting because <laughs> of just the way that the way the shooting happened. And so uh, the first three seasons are adapting the novels at approximately 48 seconds per page. The first few seasons, very different from how the show would go moving forward. At first, they're like, look, every season's a book. First season's Game of Thrones. Second season's uh, Clash of Kings, you know, right? Storm of Swords, et cetera, et cetera. But as they kept adapting it, they realized, no, we need to just focus on adapting the whole thing, the whole thing as a as as one big whole because we're going to need to pull from this book during this this part of mm-hmm. the season, but we're going to have to pull from this book during a later part, and yada, 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 as, especially because the books as they go on become less... You know, everybody in, in Game of Thrones, everybody's kind of in the, the first book. Everybody's kind of together. There's not a, as much separation. No, it's, but as it goes on, people just end up all, you know, after Ned gets, it just, everyone gets all spread all over the place. And so it's really hard to just straight adapt the book when a lot of times, you know, in the books, it'll be like, oh, this book's like half of it is like Danny over here. But then these people, uh, during the exact same timeline, you're getting stories about people and, and you know, D- Dance with Dragons happening at the same time that of, of events that maybe are happening in a different book, right? I hope that's not too confusing. But um, once they hit the sixth season, of course, though... They are now ahead of the books. And whoops. Yep. Had and to uh, continue on using in interviews before they caught up, Benioff and Weiss were they're like, ha, what a nightmare scenario that would be. But luckily <laughs> we we got plenty of material to yeah, work with and you know be fine. it'll be great. So Benioff says uh, about this issue, the lucky part is that George works with us and he's a producer on the show. Last year, we went out to Santa Fe for a week to sit down with him and just talk through where things are going because we don't know if we are going to catch up and where exactly that would be. If you know the ending, then you can lay the groundwork for it. And so we want to know how everything ends. We want to be able to set things up. So we just sat down with him and literally went through every character. And Martin says, I love this quote because it's so from a different time in in the in the chronology <laughs> of uh, how the show ends up going. He said, "I can give them the broad strokes of what I intend to write, but the details aren't there yet. I'm hopeful that I cannot let them catch up with me, and it's my hope that long before they catch up with me, I will have published The Winds of Winter, which will give me another couple years. It might be tied on the last book, A Dream of Spring, which I did not realize the last book was called A Dream of Spring. I only knew about The Winds of Winter. But anyways, it might be tight on the last book, A Dream of Spring, as they juggernaut forward. So he was thinking maybe they would have to write, you know, the last very, very ending without 
maybe the final, final book coming out. But even then, he'd have more details about everything and how it all goes down. I mean, it's very clear, I mean, snap back to the modern era, that even with the primer of where all the pieces are going to end up, it to get the pieces where they needed them to be in such a truncated final two seasons, it required massive like swerves and massive like changes into the reality of the show. Yeah. And I'm very hopeful again, fingers crossed. We're talking to you from the past that now that like the real gear change jerking. Yeah. uh, Like had to take place and how you received that like very sudden swerve. Okay, fine. The pieces are in place. It, it, It was a rocky road to get there, but like the ending could still be satisfying. Who knows though? I'm, I'm talking from the past. I'm going to predict because the way the internet is, and it's not really me personally, I, I'll be more satisfied than the internet. I think the internet's going to be intensely dissatisfied with this final episode. I think I will be much more accepting of it, especially because I'm one of those darn book readers. And for me, I kind of like the fact that it's a little fucked up because then I have the final books to look forward to as my true ending. You know what I mean? It's like I'm getting the bad ending right now in a video game and then the books will come out and I'll get my true ending by putting oh, sweet summer child you think the books are going to come out <laughs> you think George R. R. Martin isn't going to be found face down in a pile of cocaine <laughs> on the top of Whore Mountain which is a secret whorehouse that only the world's elites get to go to in Barcelona <laughs> all right I wanted to throw this out there too. by the way we'll we'll get into our nitpicks and our and our we'll, mm-hmm. we'll have our finale discussion on the Patreon feed oh yeah. shit five dollars but also em. and we're definitely not going to be like you know, um, too too soft on our, you know, analyzation of what went down in this uh, analysis, rather. Analyzation's not a word. Back to what I was going to say. I thought this was really interesting. This is a, a, a recap of what books they pulled from from each season, okay? Okay. And it's because it gets wild. And I, it's like, it, it makes my head hurt to think how they were able to do all this. Season one, Game of Thrones. Season two, Clash of Kings. Season three is just a portion of Storm of Swords. Of course, I believe season three ends with the Red Wedding. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, season four is the rest of Storm of Swords and then portions of A Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons. Season five is a mishmash of stuff from Feast, Dance, Storm, and Winds of Winter. Four fucking books they're pulling from at this point. Season six is Crows, Dance, and Winds of Winter. Season seven is Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring, Mishmash. Well, what we what, what is was supposed to be season eight again, Winds of Winter, still pulling from Winds of Winter season eight, and then also Dream of Spring. Maybe Winds of Winter ends with the Night King or something, like the big battle of that. And then the final book is, is wholly about... You know, moving from uh, Winterfell down to King's Landing. and I, I mean, and that would be awesome because I think it needs that much time, you know? And that's the problem everybody has. And that's the thing I agree with everybody on is that so weirdly, this final couple seasons have just been this truncated, rushed thing. And therefore, the characters' motivations feel unfounded. Weiss says about the way they ended it, it doesn't just keep on going because it can. I think the desire to milk more out of it is what would eventually kill it if we gave in to that. It's which not, is funny to hear in hindsight. Well, this is the other thing. This is, again, hot take. They talk about how because of the enormity of the production and how much... Uh, it's covering different shooting locations from Malta to Belfast to, you know, California to all these v- VFX houses to all mm-hmm. these actors contracts mm-hmm. that to keep everything going is a 52 weeks a year job. 
Yeah. It is a massive drain on their resources. They talk about how, you know, it would they would have to f- take a cross-Atlantic flight to go to their kid's first day of school, like wave them off and then go right back. Yeah. A uh, lot of sleep, a lot of headaches. Uh, you're earning a bunch of money. You can't do anything with it. Benioff ended up marrying Amanda Peet. Uh-huh. And you can't, you can't even tap that sweet, sweet 90s ingenue butt. <laughs> Weiss married Amanda Pete's best friend for some reason, which is weird. Um, <laughs> Pete and uh, that makes sense. I, All besties going on dubbies. Mm, don't mm. Uh, <laughs> having switchies. Their besties wives having switchies. Their going wives on wrote a children's book about how being a Jew on Christmas sucks, which is weird. That's anyway, fun. And you know, so does it suck to be a Jew on Christmas? Uh, there's worse things, but you know, if you're like six, you're like man. Then, so so what I'm saying is. It's not about milking it. It's about the fact that, like, they want to do other things. Yeah. And, they, and how much they're willing to sacrifice their own lives in pursuit of the story. I think doing this would mean uh, actors, especially the young actors, would have gotten too old. So this probably doesn't work. Arya doesn't age. She's but just a weird potato Even person. the other. But I guess you could recast actors. But, man... <laughs> I don't know about you. I like new Sansa. <laughs> but man, well, I not them, but maybe like the little, the child actors you would maybe, the young youngs, um, you could recast. But I almost wish then why couldn't they have just taken like five years off? Like I would have been fine with that. Would, would the, the internet probably would have freaked out about that too. We've waited two years between these like mini seasons. I would have waited five. I would have, if, if knowing in, in hindsight how things are now and how annoyed, you know, especially it just hurts my heart to have everybody shitting all over this, I think, amazing thing, except for this, you know, they're just not really sticking the landing as well. I think they're, I think the spectacle, I, I think they I didn't just would understand. have been cool. Six years? A decade? Go work on other shit. Let the man finish the books and come back when it's time. I would have been completely cool with that, but I get it. I'm sure there's, ne- you know, there's studio pressure. Oh, countless pressure. There's all this type of shit going I, on. I just think they misallocated the resources. I think the and we will get more into this later. But I'm glad we're having this. At ten this million, is the do- place to talk about. At it you know, a hundred million dollars. You know, massive blockbuster budgets. You didn't have to spend that much money on like shots of explosions and crazy corpse CG and midair dragon fights. That's like, that's cool, but that's not really what we wanted. My favorite epi- uh, case in point, my favorite episode of this season is d- with a bullet episode two and it's no action. And it's just these people in rooms talking to each other. Exactly. And I thought it was incredible. I loved it. I had no, I wasn't wearing my drag. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know there's people out there who are like that, but for me, my favorite stuff is just, Tyrion in a room with Jamie having a conversation. That shit is great, the, you know? Watching um, the first season where it's Sean Bean and Lena Headey having this fucking, like, seemingly polite conversation in a courtyard where, like, you know, she lays out the Game of Thrones speech and, like, this, this like, it's culminated to this one confrontation and it's, you know, it's polite, it's cordial, it's chivalrous even, but it's, like, dripping with dread and menace. Yeah, yeah. It's so much more compelling than just Cersei sipping wine while watching a $500 million <laughs> dragon <laughs> puppet blow up a city. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. So, season seven and eight is what we're referring to, the final two seasons. They are 13 episodes total and uh, this is, a, of course, a deviation from the usual 10 episodes a season. Uh, Weiss referred to this as it's crossing out of a television schedule and into more of a mid-range movie schedule. The final four episodes are all over an hour in length, closer to an hour and a half 
all of them. Um, and yeah, that's 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 our ending. And again, we haven't seen it yet, so we'll have more of um, a wisdom about uh, every the whole final of everything next week when we record our episode. To quote Amelia Clark in that uh, very awkward interview. Uh, best season ever. <laughs> <laughs> so the directing. Let's talk about that for a bit as we get near the end of our episode. What? Things don't need directors. Oh, please. What does I, a director do? So unlike the writing portion where I was able to name all seven writers because there were only seven of them, uh, the directing, obviously, much more directors, right? Every t- 10 episode season had approximately four to six directors who tended to do back-to-back episodes. Um, the notable director I'll talk about our Alan Taylor, who has directed on a ton of HBO shows such as Soprano, Sopranos, rather, Deadwood, and Six Feet Under, but also other shows like Mad Men and The West Wing. I think at one point he was up for like Mad Men. He he was like up for an Emmy for like Mad Men and Game of Thrones, like at this in the same Emmys. He was like competing with himself. He was that fucking killer of a TV director. Like this is one of those guys, like a staple director of these TV shows. And it's interesting how these guys, unlike, you know, Spielberg or whatever, I mean, this guy's work is probably up there with these directors we revere, but you don't know their names, you know, mm-hmm. because it's it's on uh various episodes of TV shows. He did uh he's the only one who did 7 episodes for Game of Thrones. Um, which is more than uh, like uh, any other director. But you also have Alex Graves, David David Nutter. Every time I see his name, I say it out loud, and I say David Nutter, which I wonder, too, you know, last names was like Shoemaker and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Did he come from a family of crazy people? No, Is no. that how he got his no, name? No, like all people from, <laughs> he came from a prodigious family of ejaculators. Oh, there you go. Perfect. As uh, all people are from, I guess. <laughs> you know, uh, Mark Mylod and Jeremy Podeswa, they each have done six episodes. Episodes. And uh, David Nutter, I would like to note, did the incredibly memorable Reigns of Castamere episode. I had to mm. look up who did that one. He also, though, did the most hated episodes of this past season. So it's really fascinating to think about. Like, you, you, it's not like... I mean, I, they you know, looked great. <laughs> they did look great. It's not, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it just, it hurts my heart. It's like... You're going to shit all over this episode, but that guy gave you one of the greatest moments in television, too. Mm-hmm. So, like, maybe think about that before you smugly dismiss all, you know, this work that the, these people have put into this TV show. That uh, That's an aside. Neil Marshall's two episodes, he is the dude who gave us Blackwater and The Watchers on the Wall, which are two of the best battle episodes. Mm. Blackwater, of course, the big crazy green explosion stuff. Like, that was an amazing... Kind of set the standard. It feels like after that, they had to keep one-upping themselves. It was a blessing and a curse for the series. And The Watchers the Wall, that big awesome battle at the wall. Not the one in season eight, but the one um, that we got a couple seasons before that. Uh, Yeah, he was... Also known as The Ride of Stannis. (laughs) He was the guy they would hit up um, before this past season to make to to direct those big amazing epic uh, battle episodes, so uh, Weiss and Benioff they each directed two episodes as a team. They do do everything as a team. Um, apparently, they, you'll see their credit is Weiss on one and Benioff on the other, but that was just based off of a coin flip. So they they both directed, they co-directed each one, uh, and also unfortunately, uh, Michelle McLaren is the only female director out of nineteen to have uh, or 
so I think it's 19. I could be I could be off by a couple directors to have done an episode of Game of Thrones. Her resume is unbelievable. She's done episodes for Breaking Bad, X-Files, Westworld, and The Walking Dead, to name just a few. She's incredible. And it, I, I was sad to read that there was only one female director. Do you know what episode she did? I, didn't, I don't have that. Uh, I'll have to look it up, but I could get that for you next week. Oh. Um, wait, next week? Yeah, we've got a two-part. Well, the, the listeners know. They see that it says HBO's <laughs> Game of Thrones Part 1. That's a mean April Fool's joke we should do one year. Make it a two-parter, and then it's no, we be make like, it, psych! We make it Part 3, and people will be like, what? What? <laughs> um, I, I was really interested personally in, because... I watching like little vignettes of behind the scenes and you see all these ridiculous locales all over the world. I, I wanted to nail down exactly where they were in the world a little bit while they were shooting the primary location for the first season, a little bit simpler. All you really have is Winterfell King's landing. It's um, well, no, you have Daenerys too with the Dothraki as well, but it's just a little bit more pared down in the first book. Um, they end up doing uh, mostly Northern Ireland for the first season. There's this studio called the Paint Hall in Belfast, which they largely used, I believe, throughout the whole. No, yeah, that run. was their base of operations. Yeah, that was their main spot. And the grounds of Castle Ward were used for Winterfell. Castle Ward is a location in Northern Ireland that looks amazing. I would love to go visit. That'd be uh, like a really good place. Literally, the King's the epic destruction of King's Landing. Spoiler alert! We said spoilers. Um, uh, was built in Belfast in their back lot. Oh, cool. Like, from scratch, they had to build this towering... Oh, wow. Just bomb of a city block. They also, for King's Landing, at least in the first season, they used Malta, uh, which is an archipelago off the southern tip of Italy. An archipelago, by the way, a collection of islands. I forgot what an archipelago was. Had to look it up. I was thinking peninsula, but sassy. (laughs) Yeah, right? I thought I was like... You know, one of them sassy peninsulas. No, it's just one of those little things where it's like, oh, they have one name for what is a cluster of islands. Mm. That's what an archipelago is, Uh, which is Malta. Uh, Looks like a beautiful place. Again, all of the places they shot, I'm like, man, I'd love to go visit there. Well, they were it's a boon for tourism it's Mm -hmm. like what uh lord of the rings did for new zealand yeah Uh, they did for the world because like they shot in so many locations it's amazing seeing shots of a castle black which is uh one of the most believable sets you know Uh it really does feel like a rundown uh medieval castle uh they filmed it in the bottom of a quarry which is how Mm. you get that sheer rock wall Uh in all the sets but it's amazing to see how they literally painted this this rock wall white and mm. so in the like you're like oh wow the wall but then if you zoom out it's just at a you know a couple dozen feet up it just like turns back into normal rock <laughs> In Malta, that is uh, what they use for King's Landing. Uh, they specifically use the city of Medina, um, and they use the other islands for the Dothraki scenes. So again, not too crazy, just Malta and Northern Ireland. But it wasn't. It was the second season that they moved a, a lot of stuff over to Croatia, which is hilarious to me because I notoriously would shit on Croatians in Roundtable of Gentlemen <laughs> as a running joke. But Croatian is is actually, I think maybe more so a, a sort of paradise for human <laughs> beings. It's a beautiful place, <laughs> not a not a horrible dystopian nightmare like oh, I more of a jokingly Mediterranean heaven on earth. Yeah. Yes. Whoops. <laughs> so uh, our Caspian Sea. I don't know. I don't know the world. Specifically, they use the walls of Dubrovnik and Fort Lovrijnac for King's Landing, where it would end up staying through the rest of the show. This They also, at this time, start using Iceland, where they film scenes north of the wall. Daenerys' Essos scenes were done in Morocco and Iceland. 
and at this point production is being split into three units you've got dragon wolf and raven as the name of those Very three cool. units which makes a lot of sense um and they would film at the same time they had six directing teams 257 cast members and 703 crew members which is fucking bonkers <laughs> and again i just want to reiterate if you want to poo poo this is like unbelievable the task that they achieved like stick the landing or not it is absolutely incredible what the hell happened here like this is unfound un- unprecedented uh, you know by the way also parallel shooting so they're all shooting at the same time in all these different locations with all these different crews and yet it still feels like a cohesive work at, at very little time do i feel like oh this doesn't this feels disjointed the whole show feels like you know even if they pop from Daenerys to winterfell to the wall whatever i don't feel like oh this was clearly done by like a different you know shooting team mm-hmm. you know stuff like that so the fourth season, they largely stay put where they'd been shooting. Uh, the fight between Brienne and the Hound was done in Iceland. One of my favorite moments, which I'll talk about next week when we talk about our favorite moments. Um, one of my favorite things in general about the books and the show, because they nail it in the show, is Sander Clegane and Arya's mm-hmm. buddy cop movie of a relationship. <laughs> I fucking love it, man. I just, I just, I just endlessly love the, seeing the two of them on screen together. For Dorne in the fifth season, they added Seville and Cordoba in Spain. This is when they start moving things more over to Spain. Now it's all about Croatia and Spain with for a lot of season six is filming. Uh, and then seven and eight, of course, remain largely in Northern Ireland, Croatia, and Spain. And those those are the three locations. Usually it's three. Because well, Daenerys finally got to Westeros. Exactly. So there you go. And yeah, that's just, that's a, a brief-ish overview of all of the different locales. Um, I guess we'll finish today's episode with a, a little overview of the costume design, and then we're going to mm. call it, actually. I thought we'd get to visual effects, but uh, no, 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 we'll have to get to that next week, which is good because I felt like I could do more uh, investigation on some of the dragon stuff and everything. <laughs> I, I, I finally, I was like, I can't keep, like... I was like running out of the my apartment today, just like finding you know pull quotes at the last oh, second. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of a, a mad dash by the end because there's just so much shit to go over. That's why, of course, it has to be a two parter, guys. It's yeah, it's it's a double edged sword because it's recent, so there's lots of material that's been like preserved because that's yeah. part of the marketing machine. Yes, uh, anytime it's a newer franchise, there's just so much more research because of the internet. Whereas, you know, if you if you're covering like the never ending story. You don't have the same kind of media circus online that you do, you know, Mm -hmm. like that you get now for pretty much anything that's at all popular. All right. So I just want to call this out because I fucking love the costume design in this show. And that's not something I normally think about or observe or I'm not a fashion-y person. But there's just so many beautiful, elaborate, incredible looking costumes. You can just say Marjorie Terrell's plunge gown was the fucking hot (laughs) as hell. It's fine. Please. By the way, that was inspired by Bjork and uh, her artist, uh... BF. What was what's his name? I don't. Alexander. Oh God damn it! Someone's gonna kill me right too now. Too many things to remember for this one, I guys. Didn't, I didn't even write that down because Bjork, Alex McQueen, Alexander McQueen. Uh, apparently, the dresses that they created together was a big inspiration for her her stuff. But anyways, that's off the top of the dome. I didn't even write that shit. <laughs> So, uh, Michelle Clapton is the one to thank um, for all of the costume design. She's a British costume designer. She did five seasons and then suffering burnout, as you (laughs) mentioned before. She actually leaves the show to work on The Crown 
for one season, but she ends up, uh, and she didn't think she was going to do this. She ends up coming back to finish it out during that. Oh, nice. During that one year, she, yeah, that was around season five, I believe. Yeah. Or season six. During that time, a woman named April Ferry replaced her. Um, I don't even think she replaced her for the entire season, though. She ends up winning an Emmy for costume design for the show in 2012, 2014, and 2016. So it definitely worked out for her. Sources for costumes ranged from Japanese and Persian armor to Bedouin dress for the Dothraki to Inuit-inspired animal skins for the wildlings. I mean, it's just so eclectic, so amazing, depending on where they were in the in this fantasy world. All the clothing is aged for two weeks to appear realistic on high def TV. That just means they dump it in a bucket of soy sauce. I, th- I thought they pissed on it and stuff. I mean, you piss in the soy sauce. But that's just how you make soap. I thought they just screamed insults at it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Approximately two dozen wigs were used for the actresses. They were made of human hair and very long, some of them, up to two feet long. And they each costed around $7,000 for just the way it's that's insane. But you see these Man, elaborate that's white people hair prices. Yeah. You see these elaborate though, braiding things. And apparently it took uh, around two hours to get Amelia Clark in her wig. That's how intense uh, uh, that, but that again makes sense. I mean, she seems to have the most elaborate hair in that show. Well, The braids represent her victories and much like the, co- <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Dothraki, baby. That's right. Uh, Also, the wigs uh, got processed as well to look unwashed and all that good stuff. A lot of the costume design choices, I loved reading this. So there's a lot of little details. When when somebody's, like, family member dies, they would... uh, You'd see them maybe later in the show or the next season with, uh, like, an accent, uh, something that was uh, pulled from their family member's costume design. She would subtly add that in to to give us that sense of grief, that sense of remembrance of people. And that's something you wouldn't even notice necessarily. But you have to understand. Such a great choice. This She's the woman behind Sir Jorah Mormon's teal scarf that really made his eyes pop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those steely blue Mormon eyes just Absol- popping with the scarf. It's a... Mm. Absolutely. Cersei's coronation dress, for example, at the end of season six, which is incredible. Go back and look at it. It looks so fucking cool. It's got these like metal like um, shoulder pad kind of things. And it just looks amazing. It is actually um, reminiscent of her father's look Mm. Uh, of. uh, uh, Oh, fuck. Tywin. Yeah, Tywin. Okay, good. Oh, there's so many names, man. It's so difficult. And my wife by- my wife is like unbelievable at, by the way, um, remembering everybody's name <laughs> and everybody's deal. So uh, I'm just saying Charles Dance deserves to be remembered. Also, Kid Harrington notably had an awful time with his costume as his coats and cloaks were incredibly heavy uh, up there in Winterfell. Clapton said of this, though, and I found this to be fascinating. I love this type of stuff because this type of stuff, like when it comes to metaphor and costume design to represent what the character's going through, she says... When we first started with Kit, his coat was always thin because he was the bastard son and it implied that he wasn't cared for as much. Everyone had something more substantial to wear, but when he's in his this cold climate, he has to have this weight, and it almost reflects the weight of him and his personality as Jon Snow. There's this dourness to him and this weight of expectations and pressure. So as difficult as he found to wear it, I still think it was the right decision to do it, and I think it probably, in a good way, affected his performance. Having to lug this burden around, this costume around just just added to his his uh, performance as an actor this is something i didn't realize till i was uh, doing research but apparently the 
the castle, uh, the the Night's Watch didn't have a standard uniform. If you pay attention, the the idea was these were standard the the clothes on their backs dot that they had to just dye black themselves. So mm. you can see that like the regal ones had like more uh, kind of nicer vestments, but like some of the poorer like dregs or the former prisoners, their vestments are like tattered and like gross as because it's just their own clothes that they had to dye black. Yeah, that's interesting. Another interesting thing is that Samuel Tarley's cape was actually a reworked Ikea rug. That's amazing. And that's where we're going to end it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. I'm so excited to get to next week's episode because we get to talk about all these amazing actors. I fucking love these actors. I, like, follow um, uh, Maisie and um, (laughs) Sophie Turner on Instagram. They're hilarious. I love their relationship. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about so many great performances in this show. Um, So many, uh, just just such an incredible range of performances. And I'll finally get to bust out my Liam Cunningham impression. (laughs) We're going to talk about notable moments, maybe give you uh, some uh, uh, good uh, info. uh, Behind the moments. Behind those moments, such as the Reigns of Castamere episode. We'll talk about, um, we'll talk about How Brienne fought a bear. (laughs) Yes. uh, Of course, the visual effects. Of course, we'll talk about that uh, iconic opening theme song and that wonderful opening uh, visual graphic. Uh, All of that next week. Thank you again, everybody, for joining us. Um, If you'd like to support us further, we do episodes once a week uh bonus episodes on patreon for just five dollars a month you can go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew i don't want to toot our own horn here but uh i've been getting we've been getting messages where people being like oh i finally signed up for the patreon and you're really underselling how much good fucking podcast content now now that we've been doing the patreon for what a year now you have it like at least what um i don't know what's four times fucking 56 or something episode 52 at least episodes um i'm sure of all the great issues of the day oh uh, should sekiro have an easy mode can you pirate video games how horny is too horny like these are the (laughs) things that we don't get to talk about on the show um so again thank you so much for joining us and your support you can follow me further on twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho uh follow me on twitter at best jake young and hey, always remember, keep on whizzing. And never stop bruising. Do you think we should do a thing now where we do like the post-show thing where we just say really obvious stuff about the thing that they just listened to? Like, <laughs> now back when I was shitting on David Benny, <laughs> what I really wanted to do was shit on David Benny. God, I hate those. <laughs> and I hate when I do a viewing with people and people want to sit around and watch it. And I'm like, they're literally just repeating what we just saw with no insight. Why are you watching this? We could just have a conversation about this. And- now, what Holden wanted to do in this was he wanted to talk about how the costume design was very effective in the show. And I think we really accomplished that. Earlier, Jake definitely talked about how this Goldman Sachs was evil. <laughs> just wanted to bring it back up for no fucking reason. All right. Thanks, everybody. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.